This is Aeroff Short Stories, where you will hear tales that take science to plausible extremes or reality to the magical. Episode 3, The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights by Sir James Knowles. Welcome, I'm Judah Mahay, your host. If this is your first time listening, then thank you, and I hope you return to enjoy more of the stories we discover. Our author, Sir James Knowles, uh, is renowned for a number of reasons. These stories have been remade over and over and again. And I thought it would be so exciting to get back to those originals and see where a lot of the fairy tales and magical and insightful and fantastical stories that we have today all came from. So I am super excited about today's story, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I have. And as always, after today's episode, you can find show notes with any relevant links at judahmahay.com. If you like what you hear, please review us on iTunes or the Judah Mahay smartphone app. This will help other people find Air of Short Stories. Now, let the story begin. The Legends of King Arthur, Chapter 1 the prophecies of Merlin, the birth of Arthur. King Vertiger the Usurper sat upon his throne in London, when suddenly upon a certain day ran in a breathless messenger, and cried aloud, Arise, Lord King, for the enemy has come, even Ambrosius and Uther upon those thrones who sittest, and full twenty thousand with them, and they have sworn by great oath, Lord, to slay thee ere this year be done. And even now they march towards thee as the north wind of the winter for bitterness and haste. At those words, Vertigern's face grew white as ashes. And rising in confusion and disorder, he sent for all the best artificers and craftsmen and mechanics and commanded them vehemently to go and build him straightaway in the furthest west of his lands a great and strong castle where he might fly for refuge and escape the vengeance of his master's sons. And moreover, he cried, Let the work be done within a hundred days from now, or I will surely spare no life amongst you all. Then all the hosts of craftsmen, fearing for their lives, found out a proper site wherein to build the tower, and eagerly began to lay in the foundation. But no sooner were the walls raised up and above the ground than all their work was overwhelmed and broken down by night invisibly, no man perceiving how, or by whom, or what. And the same thing happened again, and yet again. All the workmen, full of terror, sought out the king, threw themselves upon their faces before him, beseeching him to interfere and help them to deliver them from their dreadful work. Filled with mixed rage and fear, the king called for the astrologers and wizards and took counsel with them what these things might be and how to overcome them. The wizards worked their spells and incantations, and in the end declared that nothing but the blood of a youth born without a mortal father smeared on the foundations of the castle could avail to make it stand. Messengers were therefore sent forthwith through all the lands to find, if it were possible, such a child. And as some of them went down a certain village street, they saw a band of lads fighting and quarreling, and heard them shout at one, Avant! Thou imp! Avant! Son of no mortal man, go find thy father and leave us in peace. At that, the messengers looked steadfastly on the lad and asked who he was, 
One said his name was Merlin. Another, that his birth and parentage were known by no man. A third, that the foul fiend alone was his father. Hearing the things, the officer seized Merlin and carried him before the king by force. But no sooner was he brought to him than he asked in a loud voice what was the cause he was thus dragged there. My magicians, answered Ferdigern, told me to seek out a man that had no human father and to sprinkle my castle with his blood that it may stand. Order those magicians, said Merlin, to come before me and I will convince them of a lie. The king was astonished at his words, but commanded the magicians to come and sit down before Merlin, who cried to them, Because ye know not what it is that hinders the foundation of the castle, ye had advised my blood for a cement to it, as if that would avail. But tell me now rather what there is below that ground. For something there is surely underneath that will not suffer the tower to stand. The wizards at these words began to fear, and made no answer. Then said Merlin to the king, I pray, Lord, that the workmen may be ordered to dig deep into the ground till they shall come to a great pool of water. This then was done, and the pool discovered far beneath the surface of the ground. Then, turning again to the magicians, Merlin said, Tell me now, fault Secophons, what there is underneath that pool. But they were silent. Then said he to the king, Command this pool to be drained, and at the bottom shall be found two dragons, great and huge, which now are sleeping, but which at night awake and fight and tear each other. At their great struggle all the ground shakes and trembles, and so cast down thy towers, which therefore never yet could find secure foundations. The king was amazed at these words, but commanded the pool to be forthwith drained, and surely at the bottom of it did they presently discover that two dragons fast asleep, as Merlin had declared. But Vertigan sat upon the brink of the pool till night to see what else would happen. Then these two dragons one of which was white and the other red, rose up and came near one another, and began a sore fight, and cast forth fire with their breath. But the white dragon had the advantage, and chased the other to the end of the lake. And he, for grief at his flight, turned back upon his foe and renewed the combat, and forced him to retire in turn. But in the end the red dragon was worsened, and the white dragon disappeared. No man knew where. When their battle was done, the king desired Merlin to tell him what it meant. Whereat he, bursting into tears, cried out this prophecy which first foretold the coming of King Arthur. Woe to the red dragon, which figureth the British nation, for his banishment cometh quickly. His lurking holes shall be seized upon the white dragon, the Saxons whom thou, O king, hast called to the lands. The mountains shall be leveled as the valleys, and the rivers of the valleys shall run blood. Cities shall be burned, and the churches laid in ruins. Till at length the oppressed shall turn for a season and prevail against the strangers. For a boar of Cornwall shall arise, and rend them, and trample their necks beneath his feet. The island shall be subjected to his power. And he shall take the forest of Gaul, the house of Romulus, and shall dread him. All the world shall fear him, and his end shall no man know. 
He shall be immortal in the months of the people, and his work shall be food to those that tell them. But as for thee, O Vertigern, flee thou the sons of Constantine, for they shall burn thee in thy tower. For thine own ruin waste thou traitor to their father, and didst bring the Saxon heathens to the land. Aurelius and Uther are even now upon thee to revenge their father's murder, and brood of, of the white dragon shall waste thy country, and shall lick thy blood. Find out some refuge, if thou wilt, but who may escape from the doom of God? The king heard all this, trembling greatly, and convicted of his sins, said nothing in reply. Only he hastened the builders of his tower by day and night, and rested, not till he had fled thereinto. In the meantime, Aurelius, the rightful king, was held with joy by the Britons who flocked to his standard, and prayed to be led against the Saxons. But he, till he had first killed Vertigern, would begin no other war. He marched therefore to Cambria, and came before the tower which the usurper had built. Then, crying out to all his knights, Avenge ye on him who hath ruined the Britons, and slain my father and your king. He rushed with many thousands at the castle walls, but being driven back again and yet again at length, he thought to fire, and ordered blazing brands to be cast into the buildings from all sides. These finding sooner proper fuel, ceased not to rage, till spreading to a mighty conflagration, they burned down the tower and vertigon within it. Then did Aurelius turn his strength against Hengis and the Saxons, and defeating them in many places, weakened their power for a long season, so that the land had peace. Anon the king, making many journeys to and fro, restoring ruined churches and creating order, came to the monastery near Salisbury, where all those British knights lay buried who had been slain there by the treachery of the Hengist. For when in former times Hengist had made a solemn truce with Vertigern, to meet in peace and settle terms, whereby himself and all of his Saxons should depart from Britain, the Saxon soldiers carried every one of them beneath his garment a long dagger, and at a given signal fell upon the Britons and slew them to the number of nearly five hundred. The sight of the place where the dead lay moved Eurelius to great sorrow and he cast about in his mind how to make a worthy tomb over so many noble martyrs who had died there for their country. When he had in vain consulted many craftsmen and builders, he sent, by the advice of the archbishop for Merlin, and asked him what to do. If you would honor the bang place of these men, said Merlin, with an everlasting monument, send for the giant's dance, which is in Calaris, a mountain in Ireland, for there is a structure of stone there which none of this age could raise without perfect knowledge of the arts. There are stones of vast size and wondrous nature, and if they could be placed here, as they are there, round the spot of the ground, they will stand forever. At these words of Merlin, Aurelius burst into laughter and said, How is it possible to remove such vast stones from so great a distance as if Britain also had no stones fit for the work? I pray, King, said Merlin, to forbear vain laughter. What I have said is true, 
for those stones are mystical and have healing virtues. The giants of old brought them from the furthest coasts of Africa and placed them there in Ireland, where they live in that country, and their design was to make baths in them for use in time of grievous illness. For if they washed the stones and put the sick into the water, it certainly healed them, as also it did them that they were wounded in battle, and there is no stone among them but hath the same virtue still. When the Britons heard this, they resolved to send for the stones and to make war upon the people of Ireland if they offered to withhold them. So when they had chosen Uther, the king's brother, for their chief, they set sail to the number of 15,000 men and came to Ireland. There, Gilomanius, the king, withstood them fiercely, and not till after a great battle did they approach the giant's dance, and the sight of which filled them with joy and admiration. But when they sought to move the stones, the strength of all the army was in vain, until Merlin, laughing at their failures, contrived machines of wondrous cunning, which took them down with ease and placed them in the ships. When they had brought the whole to Salisbury, Aurelius, with a crown upon his head, kept for four days the Feast of Pentecost with royal pomp. In the midst of all the clergy and the people, Merlin raised up the stones and set them upon the sepulchre of the knights and barons as they stood in the mountains of Ireland. Then, in the monument called Stonehenge, which stands, as all men know, upon the plains of Salisbury to this very day, soon thereafter, it befell that Aurelius was slain by poison at Winchester and was himself buried within the giant's dance. At the same time came forth a comet of amazing size and brightness, darting out at a beam at the end where was a cloud of fire shaped like a dragon, from whose mouth went out two rays stretching over Gaul, the other ending in seven lesser rays over the Irish Sea. At the appearance of this star, a great dread fell upon the people, and Uther, Marching into Cumbria against the sons of Vertigern, himself was very troubled to learn what it might mean. Then Merlin, being called before him, cried with a loud voice, O mighty loss, a stricken Briton, alas, the great prince is gone from us. Euralius Ambrosia is dead, whose death will be ours also, unless God help us. Haste, therefore, noble Uther, to destroy the enemy. The victory shall be thine, and thou shalt be king of all of Britain. For the star with a fear dragon signifies thyself, and the ray over Gaul pretends that thou shalt have a son most mighty, whom all of the kingdoms shall obey with the ray covers. Thus, for the second time, did Merlin foretell the coming of King Arthur, and Uther, when he was made king, remembered Merlin's words, and caused two dragons to be made in gold, in likeness of the dragon he had seen in the star. One of these he gave to Winchester's cathedral, and had the other carried into all of his wars before him, once he was ever after called Uther Pendragon, or the dragon's head. Now, when Uther Pendragon had passed through all the lands and settled it, and even voyaged into all the countries of the Scots and tamed the fierceness of the rebel people, he came to London, 
and ministered justice there. And it befell at a certain great banquet that a high feast which the king made at Eastertide, there came with many other earls and barons, and Gorlius and, and the Duke of Cornwall, and his wife Egerna, who was the most famous beauty in all Berlin, who was the maze, who was the most famous beauty in all Britain. And soon thereafter, Gorlius being slain in battle, Uther determined to make Ingerna his own wife. But in order to do this, and enable him to come to her, for she was shut up in the high castle of Tingigel, on the furthest coast of Cornwall, the king sent for Merlin to take counsel with him, and to pray for his help. This, therefore, Merlin promised him on one condition, namely that the king shall give him up the first son born of the marriage. For Merlin, by his arts, foreknew that his firstborn should be the long-wished prince, King Arthur. When Uther, therefore, was at length happily wedded, Merlin came to the castle on a certain day and said, Sir, thou must now provide thee for the nourishment of thy child. And the king, nothing doubting, said, Be it thou wilt. I know a lord of thine in this land, said Merlin, who is a man both true and faithful. Let him have the nourishment of the child. His name is Sir Ector, and he hath fair possessions both in England and in Wales. When, therefore, this child is born, let him be delivered unto me, unchristened, and yonder postern gate, and I will bestow him in the care of this good knight. So when the child was born, the king bid two knights and two ladies take it, bound in rich cloth of gold, and deliver it to the poor man whom they should discover at the postern gate, and the child being delivered thus to Merlin, who himself took the guise of a poor man, was carried by him to a holy priest and christened by the name of Arthur, and then was taken to Sir Ector's house, and nourished at Sir Ector's wife's own breast, and in the same house he remained privily for many years, no man soever knowing who he was, save Merlin and the king. Anon it befell that the king was seized by a lingering distemper, and the Saxon heathens, taking their occasion, came back from the, over the sea and swarmed upon the land, wasting it with fire and sword. When Uther heard, therefore, he fell into a greater rage than his weakness could bear, and commanded all his nobles to come before him, that he might upbraid them for their cowardice, and when he had sharply and hotly rebuked them, he swore that he himself, nigh unto the death, although he lay, would lead them forth against the enemy. Then, causing a horse litter to be made, in which he might be carried, for he was too faint and weak to ride, he went up with all of his army swiftly against the Saxons. But they, when they heard that Uther was coming in a litter, disdained to fight with him, saying it would be a shame for brave men to fight with one half dead. So they retired into their city, and as it were in scorn of anger, left the gates wide open. But Uther, straightway commanding his men to assault the town, they did so without loss of time, and already reached the gates when the Saxons, repenting too late for their haughty pride, rushed forth to the defense. The battle raged till night, and, and begun against the next day, but at last the leaders, Octa and Iosa, being slain, the Saxons turned their backs and fled. 
leaving the Britons a full triumph. The king at this felt so great joy that whereas before he could scarce raise himself without help, he now sat upright in his litter by himself and said with a laughing and merry face, This can't, they called me the half-dead king. And so indeed I was, but victory to my half-dead is better than defeat and the best health. For to die with honor is far better than to live with disgrace. But the Saxons, although thus defeated, were ready still for war. Uther would have pursued them, but his illness had by now so grown that his knights and barons kept him from the adventure, whereto the enemy took courage and left nothing undone to destroy the land until descending to the vilest treacheries, they resolved to kill the king by poison. To this end, as he lay sick at Verulam, they sent and poisoned stealthily a spring of clear water, whence he was wont to drink daily. And so on the very next day he was taken with the pains of death, as were also a hundred others after him. Before the villainy was discovered, and heaps of earth thrown upon the well, the knights and barons, full of sorrow, now took counsel together, and came to Merlin for his help to learn the king's will before he died. For he was by this time speechless. Sirs, there is no remedy, said Merlin, and God's will must be done. But ye all to-morrow, before him, for God will make him speak before he die. So on the morrow, all the barons with Merlin stood around the bedside of the king, and Merlin said out loud to Uther, Lord, shall thy son Arthur be the king of all this realm after thy days? Then Uther Pendragon turned him about and said in the hearing of them all, God's blessing and mine be upon him. I bid him pray for my soul and also that he claim my crown and forfeit all of my blessings. Him those words, he died. Then came together all the bishops and the clergy and great multitudes of the people and bewailed the king. And carrying his body to the convent of Ambrias, they buried it close by his brother's grave within the giant's dance. Thank you for listening to The Legends of King Arthur by Sir James Knoll. Chapter 1, The Prophecies of Merlin and the Birth of Arthur. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. Or if you listened from the smartphone app, you can leave a review on the App Store. This will help other people find us. Just as a reminder, show notes are at judamahay.com. We hope you return to discover new worlds and ideas outside our current reality. Good night and good day, whenever and wherever you might have found us. A heartfelt thank you from Air Off Short Stories. Mm -hmm.